friends, this is Secret Sauce, a podcast about the secret ingredients in artwork and life. I'm your host, Becca Borelli. I'm also an illustrator out of Austin, Texas, and this is episode seven entitled, Are Artists Essential? Which, to be fair, I'm not really sure if I wanted the title to be a question. Like, I think maybe a more fair title would be Yes, artists are fucking essential. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so there, that's the end. We don't need to talk anymore. Um, I want to talk about the idea of essential, though, for for real, because um, it's so in our at the forefront of our collective psyche right now, isn't it? This idea of who is essential to us um, personally and collectively and globally, like what is needed, the most needed things to keep a society from breaking. Um, And the reason I was thinking about this even to begin with is because a couple weeks ago, I was doing an interview here in Austin with Texas Disposal Systems. Um, They are a privately owned uh, trash recycling compost <laughs> collector in Austin, and they reached out about doing coloring pages together for Earth Day. There's a link in the bio of my Instagram account where you can download them for free if you're interested. So we um, and they were so kind. They invited me to do some media spots with them about the coloring pages and about Earth Day, and I was doing an interview with them um, on Fox 7. You can <laughs> Google it Google it if you want to see it. Um, it was short, you know, but um, about half, well, not halfway, about, you know, like a few seconds before it was going to wrap up, the news anchor was thanking TDS for um, uninterrupted service. You know, they um, have continued to provide essential service to Austinites. It's been uninterrupted. They're doing a lot for the community. And, um, so she was thanking them and, and (laughs) if you watch the interview, maybe you'll notice this too, but while I was in the interview, I caught this feeling that she had a brief glimmer of like, oh no, I'm leaving out the artist. (laughs) I'm insinuating the artist is also not essential, (laughs) which was not dots that I was connecting at the time, but I I felt her pick up on it and she immediately pivoted and she said... (laughs) She said, Rebecca, artists are essential too, and we're so grateful to you. You're keeping us sane during this time. And I wasn't totally sure if she believed that necessarily, but I, I could tell that she definitely just wanted me to feel appreciated, which I did. And um, and then it got me to thinking about that, right? Like, am I essential? Do you, I don't know if you listening to this can relate to that. Am I like how do how do I matter right now? Like, I mean, I have to say honestly, y'all, being compared to Texas Disposal Systems as essential felt kind of silly. I mean, it is kind of silly, <laughs> silly. Um, but I also think that even though the service that I provide compared to nurses or grocery store clerks or trash collectors or whatever. Even though the service I provide is so different, I'd like to suggest that it's incredibly essential. Um, And I want to talk about how it's essential and and how it's different and how the differences can make it confusing, honestly, to understand the value that artists are providing. Um, Whether you identify as a professional artist or not, whether you identify as, you know, just a hobbyist, I don't even like saying just because hobbyists that make art are profoundly powerful. And just because you're not selling your work doesn't somehow like reduce the value of your work, even in the slightest. (laughs) So let me just get that out there. But, um, but people, I think people just collectively on all sides of the artistic spectrum, whether they're in it or looking at it or making it or consuming it feel a little unclear. Like what is the value of making art? generally speaking, and (laughs) during a pandemic. (laughs) So I want to tell some stories about this and, um, and I want to use it as a vehicle to kind of drive a car with myself and some artist friends listening to this who might be interested in coming along on the road trip 
to talk about the ways that we're, I believe, really uniquely poised to help and serve the culture in an unprecedented way, in a way that artists have never been able to serve before. And yeah, here we go. (laughs) So... So I want to start off by telling you a story from when I was a school teacher. I know I tell stories from this time often because working with children is so profoundly um, meaningful and impactful. And also children are so present to their lived experience that it makes being around them also put you there too. Like I have... You know, we remember the the moments that we were most present for, (laughs) and I have so many memories from when I was a teacher because those kids were just constantly pulling me back into the moment. I would try so hard. (laughs) If you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. I would try so hard to like project myself in the future. I got to plan for the next class. I got to set out the paints for the first graders coming in, and then there would be a third grader like, I need you. (laughs) Like... Um, you can't really go into the past and the future as much with kids because they demand that you be with them here and now. And that can be, (laughs) there's pros and cons to that. But I like to say there's, there's definitely more pros for sure. Anyway, so, so one of the things that was really interesting about starting off as a school teacher, and I think all school teachers will tell you this to some extent, no matter what subject they teach or where their undergraduate or graduate degree was from, that there's this interesting um, disconnect between learning to be a teacher in a college environment and then going into the actual environment. And I think this is true for all careers, for sure. And I can't really say, because I don't have experience in a lot of other careers going from college to the profession only with teaching, but I will say that I was really close-lined by the transition that, you know, I, I had an, a really cool amount of field experience. I went to Kent State in Ohio and the art education program there was known for giving tremendous amounts of field experience. I was in classrooms by the time I was a sophomore and through my senior year was just constantly in front of kids, in front of adults, literally practicing teaching. And you know, I got to my student teaching my last semester and I already felt kind of like I really knew what I was doing. And I, I went into teaching in public school feeling very prepared. <laughs> and one of the things that I was very excited about was that in my undergrad program, we were really um, encouraged to adapt this idea of process over product, this philosophy of teaching, especially art teaching, which says that the value of anything, especially making art, especially learning, um, but anything really, is first and foremost in the process. And, And that yes, product matters, that what you make matters, but that who you are, how you feel, how you grow, how you learn, how you persevere in the process is what really matters because the products are impermanent and fleeting. You know, like you'll make something and then it's cool for a little bit and then it's it's gone. But who you are and how you've grown is with you forever. And So we were taught to create lessons and curriculum that were very process-focused, that gave kids this priority experience really early, that they were being asked to make things without a tremendous amount of stress placed on product performance, that instead they should be thinking about big ideas and who were they and what was their style and how could they incorporate ideas in ways that were meaningful to them and gave them pleasure in the process. Um, How could we teach them resiliency when they struggled with the process? Um, It was beautiful. I was just, I was so inspired by my program, my undergraduate program, and I came into teaching with a ton of passion and, and energy. But one of the things that Kent and the art education program at Kent really sort of, I don't know if failed is the right word, but they definitely didn't prepare me for this, um, was that public schools 
or, or I mean, it's probably safe to say most all schools, <laughs> uh, especially when I was going, you know, into education 15 ish years ago, um, was still very, very product focused. And my school was very fucking concerned about product and it wasn't, it wasn't overt, but it was very implied that the value of my teaching and the value of my program was always kind of being compared to the beauty of the work that the kids were producing. That, And I remember the first year, I was kind of like starry-eyed and idealistic, and I kind of felt the pressure a little bit, you know, here and there. Um, but I, I remember the first time that I really felt it was at conference time. So first of all, no one almost ever comes to see the art teacher during conferences, <laughs> but I was new, right? I was a new teacher and the kids were um, excited about having a new teacher and they would go home and tell their parents. And so that first year, a lot of parents came and stopped in and talked to me and wanted to see their kids' artwork. And I couldn't ignore this feeling that I was getting over and over from different parents that they were like disappointed and the and honestly like seeing the work through their eyes made me disappointed because I had been with their child when they were starry-eyed and gleaming over paint mixing, and that was my goal. (laughs) But here, removed from that process, seeing it just through the product with their parents, I suddenly became very aware of the inadequacy of the product, and it made me feel like terrible, honestly, about my teaching and about my value as a teacher. I remember one set of parents literally said, wow, the teacher before you was able to make better stuff with the kids. Like really? I mean, that's pretty shitty to say even under the best circumstances, but, um, and then that sort of stress just kind of continued the whole second half of the year and culminated in art shows at both of the schools I was teaching at. And I was just so embarrassed and oh, I just and feeling and feeling frustrated for being embarrassed, right? Because I felt like I was letting down these kids by having any type of shame around what they had made, you know? And so I spent the summer reflecting on this and I, I was going into my second year. And I thought there has to be a way to like stay true to my principles, to stay true to process, and also to incorporate principles and elements of design in a way that helps improve the product, you know, for that for the eyes of the community and administration and all that. And I discovered over the years, I mean, I'm and I'm saying this now, like 15 years out from this moment, (laughs) that that there is a way to do both. And it and also it takes a tremendous amount of time and experience. It's a tightrope walk, you know, that I just didn't have the nuance to, to finagle. Um, but I went into my second year thinking I'm going to give, give it a shot. And one of the first lessons I did was with second grade on Tibetan monks making sand mandalas. I'm not totally sure if I would do this lesson anymore because in in a lot of ways now talking about it, it feels like, I don't know if appropriation is the right word, but you know, I wasn't, I was definitely not in a a really adequate place to truly teach the meaningful aspects of this type of art making (laughs) as like a white Ohioan from whatever. But you know, in Ohio, that one of the standards is to have a certain amount of multicultural offerings in your curriculum. And so this was an attempt to meet that standard. And uh, and also Tibetan sand mandala making is incredibly process focused. And I thought, okay, this is like a really cool opportunity for me to try to incorporate some product-based knowledge into this very process-based lesson. And usually teaching process-based art making is, is very implicit. You don't sit kids down and say, today we're going to learn about process. But in this particular unit, we were really doing that, right? So the kids, the kids sit down on the carpet. I'm showing them images of this work. If you get a chance, you, if you haven't seen any Tibetan monks and mandalas, you should Google some. They're beautiful. They take weeks, sometimes longer to meticulously lay these beautiful, very symmetrical, highly intricate 
um, works out. They're usually in a public space, like on display for a period of time, and then they're ceremoniously blown away, sort of as a statement to the collective about impermanence and letting go of our attachments to products and attachments to physicality, that the value of making a mandala, just like the value of living life, is in the present moment, in the process, and how that changes you, right? Cool. So I'm like, great, how am I going to teach this to fucking (laughs) seven-year-olds? So so that feels so weird, by the way. I feel like I immediately was like, why did you use the F word in front of (laughs) seven-year-olds? Sorry. Uh, I love... I love a strategically placed swear word, as you know, if you've been listening to these episodes, but that one felt a little uncalled for. So I just had to get that out there. So I sit down with these kids and I, I ask them to tell me if any of them have experienced watching a movie or playing a video game. And when they get to the end of it, they're excited to experience the culmination of the movie or of the video game, but that they're sad that it's over, that it was so enjoyable that they're kind of sad it's over. And all of them rose their hands. Like they all got it. And I said, cool. I said, this is going to be our focus for this project. I said, we're going to make sand art very similarly to these uh, sand pieces, obviously not physically very similar, but you get the idea. And, and the, and the, the art is going to be the fun not the the sand art. The sand art is going to get blown away. And the kids were like so into it. I was very unsure if they were going to be down for such a, a radical idea. And they were really pumped. So I had gotten these trays. Each of them had their own individual space. And for a week or I think it took a full day and then another day. So there was like two weeks that we were working on these. And And it would have worked if I didn't then immediately transition into product-based teaching like 100%. I think I thought at the time, right, that I didn't have the, like I used the the metaphor of the tightrope earlier. I didn't have the finesse to walk the line between process and product. And that was what was really needed. So I spent the whole first part of the class like, hundred percent on process. And then I just completely went over to the far other side. And for the remainder of the unit, I truly only talked to the kids about product-based things. Uh, for example, here's the colors that you can choose to make this feeling. And here's how you keep it symmetrical or asymmetrical. Here's how you lay the sand out in a way that's very organized and neat, like all physicality, all um, product. We weren't talking about how they were feeling. We weren't talking about staying in the moment and observing and reflecting on each piece of sand and how that, you know, relationship was, you know, going to inform the next color that they chose. You know, it was all about product. And so not surprisingly, (laughs) I'm sure you can see where this is going. I, have the kids line up. We're going to go out to the playground. We're going to blow these sand mandalas away. And I immediately start to see this isn't going to work. First of all, the kids are stressed out just standing in line, right? Because they're holding these sand mandalas that are loose, loose sand. We didn't glue them down or anything. And they're just terrified that someone's going to bump into them and it's going to mess up their artwork. And I'm standing here in the doorway of my classroom. And I'm like, oh man, if they're nervous about their artwork getting messed up now, like, how is it going to work? How's this going to work? I, I push forward. We go outside. We get, we get a few steps out the front door and a couple of the kids sand mandalas start like sliding around because it wasn't a terribly windy day, but it was, you know, we were outside and immediately we get like five kids start crying And I just said, nope, going back inside. So we turn around, we go back inside, we dry the tears, set the the sand mandalas to the side. And, you know, there was probably 10 minutes left of the class. I, I pulled out some coloring sheets or something and they're just, you know, settling down while the last few minutes are wrapping up. And I'm sitting at my desk just 
feeling like, wow, well, that wasn't <laughs> successful. <laughs> like, where did I, where did I misstep on that? And it was, it wasn't hard. Like I, I reflected on it and for maybe five minutes and I immediately saw, you know, I saw the glaring, the glaring discrepancy. I spent most of the lesson talking about product and the kids got attached to the product because that's what they had spent all of their energy on. And so the following week they came in and I had set down some black match paper. And I remember I chose the match paper because it's a material that kids typically aren't exposed to. It's a, a higher end art paper. It's acid-free. It's really rich black, way more velvety and luxurious than construction paper like the kids are used to. And I remember they came in and they each had one in front of their seat with a circle drawn on it um, by me. And they were touching it and, oh, what is this paper? It was so cool. And I pass out a bunch of really messy, like brightly colored chalks and oil pastels. And, and I say, we're going to try something different today. And I had them pick a color, pick a color that you feel like is your first color, the color that's speaking to you, like the color that's saying, pick me. I'm the color that's supposed to start your mandala. And the kids were like, what? <laughs> they loved it. They were, they were like, sweet, like, let me have this sort of spirit. I mean, they wouldn't have called it spiritual, but I guess that's the word I'm using for this story, this like sort of spiritual, mystical <laughs> interchange with my art supplies, right? And they got so into it and they took a minute or two to, to pick the first color. And then I had them practicing different marks on a, on a scratch paper until they found the mark that spoke to them. This is the mark that wants to go first. And you'll know it wants to go first because you won't hear it in your ears. You'll just feel it in your body like, oh, that feels so good to make. I can make that mark forever. And the kids, I remember it was so special because <laughs> they were looking at me like, Oh, Miss Burley's so weird, and we love this, you know. <laughs> so, and then I had them put that that first mark on the black paper, and the bright color was just so pleasing. And and then I said, "All right, I want you to put your art supply down." And they look at me, and they're like, "Okay." And they put it down, and then I say, "I want you to pause, and I want you to look at that mark, and now I want you to." I want you to have a conversation with that mark. What is the next right mark that will make that first mark happy? And the kids were like, are we allowed to do a different mark? Are we allowed to change colors? Yeah. Yeah, you can. And I said, but here's the, the trick. As you're working on your mandala today, you're not thinking about what you're making later. You're thinking about right now. And the only way to do that is you have to pause in between each mark. And in that pause, you're going to get a message from your artwork about what comes next. Holy shit, this was amazing. I have never uh, before or since experienced, well, I, I mean, that's dramatic. I've experienced some pretty powerful things with kids and adults in art classes, but it was, I think up until that point, one of the neatest experiences that I'd had. The kids worked in perfect silence for the entire class. I had some really calm music on. They were so incredibly focused. They worked like very slow and they were so in the moment. And I realized as I was watching them, you know, it was almost, I'm not sure if I can think of the right word. It was almost a little elitist of me to even assume that these kids needed a lesson on process-based learning. Kids are already wired to make art this way. It's just that we don't need to teach kids to be in the moment. We need to stop ourselves from taking them out of the moment. <laughs> and that's what I had been doing, right? They were they were naturals at it. I do this same type of process with adults and it's always magical to the exact same degree with adults as it is with kids, but it does take longer because adults have been 
sort of programmed to no, no, no product matters. If this thing is ugly, I'm going to be sad and it's going to hurt. And I, and people are going to judge me. And I mean, there's so many voices that are in there with me too, by the way, like I don't, (laughs) I'm very much speaking from experience here for myself, not just for my students. And and when the teacher showed up at the door, I mean, we all lost track of time. So the teacher shows up at the door and the kids are just immersed. And I remember it was so deep, the immersion into their work, that they were like a little stressed. They were like, no, no, we don't want to go. Like, oh, this feels uncomfortable. Like, how am I supposed to shift from this place that feels so good into math or <laughs> not? And no shame on math, right? But the shift, I mean, oh, what a shift. And there were seven <laughs> and they were very vocal. They were like, ma'am, Miss Pirelli, please don't let it, please let us stay. Can we come back at recess and do more? And it was really, really powerful. And if my mind hadn't been blown enough (laughs) as the kids were lining up, one of the kids, her name was Hannah. And I know not everyone ascribes to reincarnation or the idea of old souls, but I do. (laughs) And so I will use that example in this story um, and tell you that if old souls exist, and I believe they do, Hannah was absolutely an old soul. She was always saying stuff to me that just blew my mind. And as we were lining up, she said, Miss Borelli, the the mandalas aren't the art. We are the art. Y'all, she's seven. (laughs) What? WTF, right? And I remember just, I had a planning period after that class, which was so great. I just sat in the silence of my room and just let that experience simmer inside of me. And I, and I was thinking, Hannah, yes, that is how we're wired from the time we're little. We don't make art to make art <laughs> when we're little. We make art because art makes us. The process of making and staying in the moment is something very natural for kids. It's just, it's how they are. Like if you watch a three-year-old make art, they're not thinking about the product, y'all. <laughs> they might learn to tell adults, oh, I'm making mommy or I'm... But they're not thinking about, does my picture of mommy look like mommy? Does this picture of mommy look good? Are people going to judge me? (laughs) No three-year-old's thinking that. (coughs) For that matter, no seven-year-olds are thinking that. If you um, take um, an undergraduate course in art education and learn sort of the stages of of children in art making, um, it's when they're in third grade that they start to really criticize their, their making and compare it to classical standards of beauty and all kinds of stuff. And, and it's also when they're, by the time they're in fourth grade is when they decide if they're an artist or not. And that's why so many adults, um, you know, are kind of making art at the level of a nine-year-old and feel a ton of shame about that. And it's like, so sad. The reason I want to tell this story around the question, are artists essential, is because the process that Hannah was talking about, the process that made those kids desperately want to stay because it felt so good, is a process that I think a lot of artists are more acquainted with than they realize. All artists criticize their stuff. All artists worry that the world isn't going to like it or isn't going to buy it or is going to judge them. Like That's very much a part of my experience too. Also, I regularly can drop into the experience in that second grade class of being so deeply immersed in the moment that I'm becoming the lines and the shapes and it feels so good. And in that space, I am malleable, so malleable that even when a mistake happens, I just observe it and adjust. And it's not always that way. Sometimes I make a mistake and I'm like, fuck, (laughs) right? Like I'm not trying to make any 
big generalizations here, but that flow state, which is has been studied by researchers and is very much an important aspect of a lot of things, um, is something that a lot of creative people are familiar with. It doesn't just have to be painters and drawers and sculptors and musicians. Um, there's been really fabulous research on flow state in rock climbers that they just drop into this zone of being so connected to the rock that everything else goes away and they're in this blissful meditative space that they can come back to themselves there they can regulate their nervous systems there but the second part of why I wanted to talk about artists being acquainted with this is because I think a lot of creative people Um, whether they're visual artists or rock climbers or tinkering in cars, whatever the creative process they're engaged in might be. A lot of us that have a proficiency in some type of creative process, the proficiency, this isn't always the case, but a lot of the time it comes from experiences in childhood that felt very out of control. For me, it was not physiological. Um, I had very loving parents, very stable middle-class household, very regular routine, like very reliable, loving family members in my life. I was also incredibly sensitive and I had no help navigating that. And so everyday environments felt like a landmine (laughs) and I didn't have any idea why. I just knew that just like going around, like as early as six years, five and six years old, I remember this, just feeling like mildly unsafe and not knowing why. And so there's this huge spectrum of reasons why kids might have that experience. But when you're in an environment that you can't control, and let's be honest, when you're a kid, you have very little power to change your external circumstances at all, right? So the this very natural tendency I think we have when we're kids to, for self-preservation is to turn to the thing we can control, and that's our inner world. And it's creating and controlling what's happening inside. And so drawing was it for me. I think it's different for everybody, but I think, I think everyone's version always manifests as creative in some way. You drop into this process that reconnects you with your insides and all of that world is safe, (laughs) you know? And I think that I'm not totally sure if this is, if this is true, but I think that there, it's kind of interesting to suggest that there might be some connections there with why, why is it that a lot of the world's really creative geniuses have, you know, darker, more troubled sides of their lives. Um, this is a really cool TED talk that Elizabeth Gilbert gave um, called "The Elusive Creative Genius." If you you should check it out if you haven't seen it. It's a fascinating talk about what's up with that connection, right? What's up with that connection between really brilliantly creative people and trauma and trouble and stress and it's, I think, partly due to this safe space that creatives can find, right? Why does that matter now? Well, <laughs> it's interesting because we're kind of collectively in that space right now. Um, the world is experiencing together, all together at one time, this feeling of we have no control. We have no idea what's coming. We have no idea how long this is going to last. We have no idea about employment. I mean, and everyone's everyone's question marks are very different, right? But they're all very valid. I have no idea what my income is going to look like in a month. I have no idea if I'm going to find a new job. I have no idea if I'm going to lose my current job. I have no idea if I'm going to get unemployment or when it's going to show up. I have no idea if I can help my kid with homeschooling 
when I don't understand this fourth grade math, (laughs) I have no idea how I'm supposed to possibly take a zoom call with my boss when my two-year-old is like throwing up over there in the corner and everything feels incredibly uncertain and out of our control. And there's, there's very little we can do to regain control right now. And it's interesting to me that that puts creative people who have used making to protect themselves and to get themselves through moments of chaos, it puts people like that in this really unique place to serve the world right now. You know, we're so used to thinking of artists in terms of what they make, right? Like, oh, I I bought this landscape and when I look at it, it just gives me so much peace, you know, and that's so valid and, and still is will continue to be valid. But what could the artist who was able to create peace on a canvas that you literally feel, what could that artist's way of approaching making teach you about making in your life right now? I don't know. I mean, maybe nothing (laughs) or maybe a lot. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not, I'm definitely not creating this sort of collective call for like every artist and creative person to now go out and, and sort of formally teach this, you know, it's not, (laughs) you don't need to go out and create a class on how to survive trauma through making. (laughs) That's definitely, I don't think the point of this episode, but What I think is important to me is that people listening to this, if this is resonate, if this is not resonating with you, that's, that's fine. And so valid and it's not for you right now, but if it is resonating with you, I think it's because there's something in your approach that is really needed in the collective. And I got to tell you from my time as a school teacher, one of the neatest things I've learned about teaching is that most teaching when it comes to the invisible stuff, right? When it comes to teaching strength, teaching being grounded, teaching creativity in times of duress, teaching emotional awareness, empathy, like all the invisible stuff, right? When it comes to teaching that stuff, it almost never works to teach it in the classical way. And when I say the classical way, I mean the way that we teach reading, right? And we, and we try to do that. Don't we? Like we have these whole systems of education around teaching kids how to be kind and we'll like sit them down in these cute little groups with someone that has puppets. And we're like, this is Bobby. He's a bully, (laughs) you know? And like, then we, and I'm not saying there's no value in that because there's certainly um, value in all kinds of education, but it it rarely has the impact we want it to have. The thing that has the most impact when it comes to teaching those types of things is modeling. Kids learn that stuff by watching adults around them doing it. It's how kids learn to talk. It's how they learn to walk. You don't you don't take a one-year-old to a class and show them how to walk. (laughs) You model it. This is a very powerful, a very powerful way of sharing. And so I'd like to suggest that that applies to the creative people listening to this who maybe up until this point have been feeling a little disenfranchised. Like, how do I matter? (laughs) How do I matter right now? Do you know what, what in the world does a painting matter in a pandemic? What does a a ceramic pot matter in a pandemic, you know? And I think that they matter. Paintings and pots and music and poems, they matter. They move people. They help people. They bring beauty into people's lives during dark times. This is not a slam on product, but it's also to suggest that your way of approaching life might be really helpful. And maybe it's just being a little bit more honest and open about the way that you use making in times 
of anxiety in times where things are out of control and allowing people to access your processes, showing them how you do things. I I have no idea what it might even look like, but I think that it's really a beautiful and, and important perspective to have as artists. We're so seduced by this idea that our value to society is capitalistic that we, and we think of our value in terms of the products that we make, that we forget that a huge part of our value as artists is the way that we serve people spiritually, that, we, that the things that we make help other people make sense of their insides that bring beauty into their spaces, that give them feelings that remind them about being human and being alive and being sad and being terribly depressed. And the human condition is very challenging to navigate um, when it comes to the invisible stuff, right? When it comes to the, the spiritual stuff, the mystical stuff, the stuff of our feelings, the stuff of our minds, our subconscious, oh, we're still very unclear about those realms in this culture. And that's the area where artists really serve the collective. Art, I've, I've said this before, but artists are soul doctors. If all art went away on the planet, I think we could, I think everyone just, I mean, I don't know about you, but I have a visceral, a visceral reaction to thinking of all the artwork disappearing, all music, all movies, all paintings, all dance. I, oh my God. It's just visceral. And then if you try to give words to why does that suck? It's harder. (laughs) It's harder. You know, like if I say, what will happen if the trash collection stops? It's pretty easy (laughs) to wrap our heads around what will suck about that, you know? But when all art disappears, it's a little bit more challenging because we're not talking about physical reactions that we can experience with our five senses. We're talking about something happening that is a sixth sense thing. It's an invisible thing. And I think we would experience a soul death, honestly, a spiritual death, if we had no way to express and also feed our souls. Um, during a time of, of stress, the world, the world needs medical doctors to repair bodies a hundred percent. But y'all, to the extent that the bodies of people are needing repair right now, uh, there's soul souls that need help even even larger numbers right now. And I don't know. I mean, maybe that's just creates more question marks for you than, than otherwise. Maybe you listen to that and you're like, whoa, great. Like (laughs) we're in a pandemic and, and Borelli's telling me to, you know, heal some souls. (laughs) I'm sorry. I, I like talking about this, you know, and I feel sometimes like I'm a little bit of a broken record, but it, it's, it bears repeating. This is not, I'm not trying to make some gross generalization or, or requirement for, for you as you leave this podcast. This is like an invitation though. I really think artists are being invited right now to experience being, experience being like an expert. You know, I I was laughing about this with my friend the other night. (laughs) She's a therapist. And I said, you know, I know this is weird to say, but I said, I'm not happy this is happening. I'm not happy that like most of the people on the planet are incredibly stressed out and feel like total lack of control over their lives. But stress and relative unsafety for for invisible forces, from invisible forces (laughs) in an environment that I had no control over was like my entire childhood. (laughs) Like I feel so much empathy. 
and compassion for people that are struggling right now, because I know from firsthand how scary it is. And also I kind of feel like, oh man, I, I can help. And then immediately there's this voice in my head. That's like, who, who, who the fuck do you think you are? You're just an artist, (laughs) right? Have you thought that? And in case you were having that voice too, I wanted to do this episode. You're not just an artist. You're, you're a soul doctor. And your way of doing things is profoundly helpful. Always, but especially now. And, you know, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that what you do has been measured on this quantitative metric, right? This capitalist framework. And in a capitalist framework that's constantly regarding art making as frosting, it's not surprising that a lot of artists, even me, who spent most of my career thinking about why art matters, even I still fall victim to these deeply ingrained ideas of, oh, I'm just an artist. Because, you know, I, I was programmed by an economy and in a culture that says, yeah, cool, art's great, but later. You know, if I'm not, if I'm not feeding myself, if I'm not paying my rent, I don't have time to be like feeding my soul. And this is probably kind of a controversial thing to say, but I'm going to say it. A society that says that is a society that really doesn't understand the soul because the soul is as important as the body. And if you allow the soul to die so that you can keep the body alive, there's no fucking point. And we're just waking up to that idea. And I'm not saying that from a lofty platform of like thinking I'm awesome. I've been, I've been there. I, and sometimes still really fall into that shitty place of like really fucking just wrecking my soul to like make money, to build my business, to grind, to like, um, there's far too many people on the planet that, live quiet lives of desperation to the point where they don't even know they are. They just, it's just become normal to feel mildly like shit all the time, you know, like wake up and feel really heavy. And you're like, man, my alarm fucking get up. You stumble to the coffee machine, put a bunch of coffee in your face, like shower, just like trudge to your car you're just like in rush hour for 45 minutes. You just can barely even stand it. So you have to like check out and you get to work and you know, the job is great. It pays your bills. And of course it supports your family or not even of course, like (laughs) we have way too many people that can't even support that with their work, you know? And we call the people that it have that life, the people that like trudge through their day so that they can, and that have money, we call them the lucky ones. It's like, oh man, that's a society that just really doesn't understand the soul. But it's, it's changing, you know, and I, I get frustrated with, with boomers. I know there's so much frustration between millennial and boomers. They just like fundamentally are at odds with each other right now at this time in history, I feel like, but I feel like sometimes I hear this sort of sentiment from boomers of like, oh, millennials, they just like want this job that like feeds their soul. And like, they want a job that like makes them happy and it's like, and they like talk about it. Like it's so shitty that we want that. And I'm like, no, that's actually (laughs) millennials are waking up to the power of the soul and how important it is. It's not enough to just support the body if the soul is going to die. And a society that really values the soul is really going to value art. Right. Um, and so if you've been feeling unvalued, it's because the, the society is just really confused about your gifts still. You know, I'd like to suggest your gifts aren't the product that you make nearly as much as the way that you serve people spiritually. And, you know, this is, I, I don't mean to slam on boomers because they, they created <laughs> the, like, they created the foundation that millennials get to stand on, right? That's how every generation is. So it's 
really not <laughs> fair for me to slam on them, but oh man, I just, I, I personally get a little lit up about it because I, I ran into that a lot when I started working for myself. Like, yeah, I left this really amazing job and I think a lot of, of people, especially older people were just like, what are you doing? <laughs> you, um, anyway, I wanted to make this episode for people that are confused about how them, how much they matter, that are confused about why they matter and also about how they can serve others because my life and business changed for the better when I started really wrapping my head around the ways that I serve the world. And that's the point of this podcast, right? Secret sauce. What is the secret stuff that only you can bring? And I think the secret stuff for a lot of artists has been deeply undervalued by a market economy for a long time. And in a quarantine, in a pandemic, when market forces are highly suspended, there's this space suddenly for these other superpowers to really shine. And then that's y'all, y'all creative friends, creative peeps. (laughs) Anyway, I love y'all. I am on a side note before, if you're still listening, um, the class that I, I talked about with the second graders, I do teach versions of for adults. I'm going to be posting some information about an online version that's coming out soon. So if that type of making sounds like your cup of tea, stay tuned to this podcast or on Instagram, um, Becca Borelli art or, um, Facebook, Becca Borelli illustrations. You can also find my website. It's literally my last name. B-O-R-R-E-L dot L-I. Pretty fun. Um, And I'm excited to share that because to me, that process of making is profoundly um, moving for a lot of people, even people that I've been making for a long time. Um, So there'll be more information about that coming down the pike, hopefully the next episode. And um, yeah, please consider sharing this if you know of people who would value this information. As I always say, take what resonates with you from each episode and leave the parts that don't because so much comes through (laughs) when I'm doing these episodes and I'm certain that not all of it is for everybody. Um, yeah, until next, next time, friends, peace.